Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we kick off with this week's Spike podcast, I just wanted to let you know about an extra special live event we're hosting. The great Rod Liddell, columnist, author and scourge of metropolitan liberals, will be joining Brendan O'Neill in conversation on Zoom on the 15th of June. And you can be a part of it. Tickets are either £5 each or you can get a free ticket if you sign up to become a Spiked supporter. Anyone who donates £5 or more per month or £50 or more per year is eligible to become a Spiked supporter. So if you want to see Rod Liddell and Brendan O'Neill live on the 15th of June, the best way to do it is to become a Spiked supporter. You can do that by going to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. Or if you'd just like to book for Rod and Brendan, go to spiked-online.com forward slash events. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spikes podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me as ever, we have Spike Steps' editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the culture war in sports, the Maya Force starter case and the revolt against lockdown. America's culture war clashes are now here on our green and pleasant pitches. It's not something on behalf of our black players that I wanted to hear. But the spotlight on racism today was taken over by the cricket. Ollie Robinson was suspended from international cricket. I'm embarrassed by the racist and sexist tweets that I've posted over eight years ago. So England fans have booed the players taking the knee for the second time in a row. Players are planning to take the knee in every Euro game coming up. What do you think is going to happen? Are we in for a summer of culture war? Oh, definitely. I mean, culture war has just completely infected the world of football mm. now. And it's worth taking a step back and like seeing how strange this is. Because it's yeah. a, more than a year since George Floyd was killed. Um, 4,000 miles away, incidentally, from where all these matches are taking place. <laughs> there's no, as far as I can tell, there's no even like sports league in America, which is knee-taking with this level of consistency and yeah. uniformity at this point. It's just something very specific about the Premier League, it feels like. And yet it's still going on. And given how strange it is, I think it's also strange that the people who run the England team and the kind of football commentariat don't understand why people are irked or confused mm. by this. I mean, the booing is largely because people don't want to be hectored. They find it probably a little bit weird. They don't like politics in football. You know, anytime fans are interviewed about this, this is exactly what they say. And yet the knee-jerk reaction is just always, it's because they're racist. And it's just really, really striking that they don't see how strange, if nothing else, strange this strikes people as. Yeah, I mean, do, do you think there's been a bit of sort of gaslighting going on here? Because you, you get people like Gareth Southgate coming out and saying, this is really just about justice or mm. anti-racism or the fans don't understand they need to be educated but fans know what's going on don't they yeah and the important thing to to know is that when the players take the knee it's i think it's moved on from when colin kaepernick did it in 2016 mm. Mm. and now i think it really feels to the fans like the players are taking the knee at them i yeah. think it feels like it's directed because of the discussion about uh you know some people sending horrendously racist tweets to um, black football players that it's like we have to we are telling you be warned don't mm. be racist mm. during this game don't say anything we're doing this stand to really give an example to you to show you the right way to act and of course for people who have been you know attending football games and are part of the club and that whole dynamic of players and fans being part of a team together is break is broken down by this really kind of hectoring tone and patronising tone taken by um, the teams. I mean, Gareth Southgate's letter in which, you know, Dear England, in which he basically 
glorifies this idea of, of we're all in this together, but then right at the end says, but we're not really, because yeah. actually we're going to tell, it doesn't, we don't care that you don't like it. We don't care what you're saying. We're going to keep doing this and you and like it or shut up, leave the team. He, 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 he suggested that it was the job of footballers to mm. educate yeah. the fans. And I mean, he said explicitly they are role models yeah. as well, which I think is a slippery slope for footballers to go down, you know, <laughs> next time they get caught doing something that they shouldn't mm. do. Um, some say to some cheeky lockdown trips. To, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I won't say where. Or who, explicitly. <laughs> but yes, I mean, this is something which he's just very explicitly saying that, as you say, not just that they should be able to, but it's a duty mm. for them to be able to. And I think that the Colin Kaepernick comparison is important because the context is so incredibly different. Yeah. You know, on the one hand, he paid, this is the NFL player in the US who started taking the knee, I think it was around 2016 or thereabouts, in protest of police brutality, kind of yeah. in response to the first wave of Black Lives Matter protests that were seen there. Um, and he was obviously embraced by the kind of woke set and the corporate world as a result of this. But he also did pay a significant price for yeah. this. You know, he's basically hounded out of the NFL and all the rest of it. Now it's an entirely conformist thing. Mm. I mean, to the extent that it had any potency to begin with, it's completely gone. I think the thing that's significant is the is the backlash to the booing, really, because, you know, football fans have always been seen as, you know, slum people watching a slum sport. But that's never really come from within the football world mm. as explicitly as it does now. Mm. Gareth Southgate, in his kind of mealy-mouthed way, saying that you had Rio Ferdinand on the TV the other day basically just saying they're uneducated and they're idiots. Really, that's what's going on. The reason that they just assume, I know why you're booing, yeah. is because you're all a bunch of racists, is because they have imbibed some of those prejudices. There's no two ways about it. And how do, and how do they manage to straddle this line where they say it's actually apolitical while at the same time, we know very explicitly that if you turn on Sky Sports, it will say Black Lives Matter on the on the ticker mm-hmm. at the top. And players have worn that on their shirts, you know, during the, um, was it last season in the Premier League? Yeah. You know, how, how can they try and dis- disentangle these two things? No, it's, it's absurd. It's completely contradictory because the whole idea of Black Lives Matter, that Black Lives Matter activists claim, is they say it's a very serious political movement. They want to enact very serious political change. Uh, you know, they go on about being anti-capitalist and all these mm. things. And so if you are taking that seriously, having football teams taking part in that is quite monumental. I mean, in the context of, you know, having explicit bans on any kind of political content in Scotland, um, for example, in relation to what fans and players can do and wear and what badges they can and can't wear, it 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 doesn't fit in. If there's a different rule for this Black Lives Matter stuff. And I think yeah. particularly because it is apolitical, it's like the clapping for carers thing. It's like it, you now have to do it to signal that you're a good person. Yeah. To the extent to which, I mean, Gary Lineker, who is politically appalling in many <laughs> ways, um, said, you know, the reason we are are taking the knee is because you're booing yeah and and explicitly saying the booing that you know that the the thing that is really threatening black players in football today is not racist on social media or it's not the occasions where people still do for example like throw bananas on the pitch as they have been doing in europe recently a very small minority of people but it's this it's your unwillingness to take part in this collective Mm. kind of capped offing Mm. to uh to a kind of a a, a serious political movement that shouldn't be reduced to this sort of symbolic gesture. Kind yeah. of well, I, think, I think it is the gesture though, because on the yeah. one hand, I know we probably, there's plenty more we want to talk about, but just on the one hand, I think the one reason that you see that fans are irritated is because some of them do associate it with, you know, those riots in Westminster, yeah. uh, with people scrawling racist on Churchill statues. Some of them might have read about the Black Lives Matter UK manifesto talking about mm. the nuclear family and overthrowing capitalism, whatever. So some of them who do associate it with a kind of concrete movement as they see it, which they happen yeah. to disagree with. But I think 
the people on the other side of this debate, if you like, have a point when they say it's kind of a more vague thing than that. It's kind of people who just sort of back that sentiment. Yeah. I think the problem is that that sentiment is also irritating because it kind of presumes that people need to be told that Black Lives Matter. I mean, the, the genius of that slogan, as so many people have said, is that no one can disagree with it. Because yeah. of the fact that people really don't disagree with it, having it bombarded at them <laughs> all the time, it gets their backs up. Not because they disagree with it, because they just get really irked by the presumption that they need to be told something as simple as that. Yeah, and we should, we should move on to another sort of culture war in sport story, which is uh, Ollie Robinson, who's been suspended from the England cricket team over racist jokes that he made in tweets as a teenager. Tom, you've written about this this week. Do you want to talk about it? I, I do think this is really quite alarming. I mean, I know many people have said this, it, you know, prompted an intervention from the culture secretary, no less, saying mm. it was over the top. But what he's really been brought down for is tweeting while being a teenage idiot, really. Yeah. So he indulged in some crass racial and sexual jokes, aged 18 at the time. I don't know much about cricket, but from what I've read over the past week, he was a bit of a dickhead at the time. <laughs> he got kicked out of his club, wasn't really taking things seriously. And 10 years after the fact, he's having his test cricket debut and someone on this day during the match digs up these tweets and sort of shames him. Now, of course, mm. he's been embarrassed in front of his teammates and in front of the country and he's falsely apologised or he's very sincerely apologised, I yeah. should say. I think that really should be punishment enough. And I think actually what we saw afterwards is if you create this standard whereby the dickish, stupid things you said as a teenager could be um, used to bring you down that does open the floodgates a little bit. And we've seen two more cases this week. Another cricketer who's yeah. been um, suspended and being investigated over something that he tweeted while he was under the age of 16. That's all we know about that particular case. And then the Green Party suspending their prospective candidate in Batley and Spen because of homophobic remarks he made on Twitter when he was a teenager, things that he's also apologised for. So I just don't think that this can be the standard by which we hold people to. Because if we do, there's just no end to it, really. Mm. I know? mean, are, we just, are people just not able to forgive anyone anymore? Is, uh, do, or do apologies count for nothing? Yeah, no, I'm really worried about the like collective belief in redemption. Mm. I mean, the idea that people can change, you know, particularly from teenagehood to adulthood. Yeah. And if you've gone through, in the case of Ollie Robinson, the rigour of being part of a, um, you know, a sport and the, the everyone always goes on about, you know, role models and yeah. mentorship and what, mm. what is involved in becoming a sort of elite athlete. Does none of that count? Did, did, did none of that change him? Is he still the little twerp he was when he was 18? I mean, the it reminds me of Jared O'Meara from the Labour Party. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who, <laughs> uh, you know, Sorry, I should laugh. No, but he... he <laughs> in the rounds a bit of a totter yeah. but really he felt really bad for yeah, him because completely. he sent yeah. some he said some stuff was it I think it might even have been MySpace or Twitter or I something it was, it was it was fan forum it was, yeah. I mean, it was, was, was pre-social media it was, yeah. that, it was yeah. that historic and it, it was about like he, I think he called someone from Girls Aloud fat or said he wanted to have sex with her or there was yes. something yeah. and there was no loyalty within his within the Labour Party in the same way I think with Ollie Robinson there's been very little loyalty to say you know context matters we know this guy we mm. know that he's we don't actually recognize the 18 year old who said mm. these things because he's a different person i mean it has ramifications for all kinds of things like what's the point of prison if you don't think yeah. that people can be redeemed what's the point of saying sorry yeah, yeah, yeah. it's uh, the uh, you know we get require people to say sorry and apologize in such a false way all the time you know politicians get asked it every single week and it really denigrates what should be a very serious thing which is atoning yeah. for your wrongdoings and moving on as a person 
And that, if we don't have a belief in redemption, then we're going down a really dark path in society. I mean, I think probably all of us around here haven't, weren't as stupid as Ollie Robinson, mm. but there are lots of things in my closet that I don't ever <laughs> want to come out. And I'm very glad that I didn't have Twitter when I was a teenager. Yeah. And we've all said uh, stupid things that we should probably never repeat. So that's, <laughs> that's life, isn't it? That's part of growing up. Spiked is producing more content than ever. And I know you want to keep up with all the fantastic articles, essays, podcasts, and interviews that we're publishing every day. If you never want to miss anything we do, make sure you sign up to our daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all of Spiked's content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team, usually Tom Slater or myself. To get all of that, just go to spikes-online.com forward slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked now. Now, back to the Spikes podcast. On the free speech front, there's been a very important, much more important legal case that mm. um, it's been going on for some time, since 2019 actually. Maya Forstata uh, was fired for her gender critical beliefs this week, a court of appeal judge has ruled that she was wrongfully sacked. Hmm. Does anyone want to explain the background to this? Yeah, well, essentially she was sacked because she had voiced an opinion, or, which you're not allowed to do, um, on the whole debate between gender critical feminists and trans activists. Hmm. And what it boils down to is what she said is that sex matters. She yeah. created this organisation, Sex Matters, and that sex is real and that women are women and that men are men. A view held by the vast majority of people in society, a view even held by the vast majority of trans people. It was a hmm. very small minority of trans activists that take such umbrage with this that they would actually require someone to be sacked for it. And, you know, the this essentially is a, you know, whatever side of the debate of trans and feminists you're on, this boils down to, as you say, a free speech thing, which is, for me, the most shocking thing is, can employers own your opinions? Yeah. Can they own mm. what you're allowed to say in your outside of work? Because she actually said it on social media. So yeah. are they allowed to control the views you hold on such fundamental things as sex and biology and in particular for Maya she, she is a feminist it's part of her political identity to say that she can't uh, voice those opinions or hold those views is tantamount to repressing her political desires which again for an employer is incredibly mm. dystopian and is, is it worth I mean taking a step back and thinking that just how actually mainstream this belief is mm. I mean it's not just that obviously she is a you know she has her reasons for espousing this belief that the importance of sex, but actually the vast majority of people yeah. think that there are men and there are women. This is one of the great quirks of our age is that it's the majority position which is so often demonised. And mm. I think this is the perfect example of it, is that you have incredibly uh, fringe, frankly, kind of viewpoints on a lot of issues, which because they've so solidified themselves in politics, in the yeah. media, in in employment, in all these different sort of areas, they get enforced. And I think it's, it's worth where Maya Forstater is concerned, just clarifying the fact that this is purely about her taking this particular position and expressing it on social media, I think also on, on Slack once when the yeah. issue must have come up. Um, she has explicitly shed, said that she would respect people's pronouns when dealing with them. Um, there, I don't think there's even ev any evidence that at this think tank that she worked out, there was any trans people there. So this might have really been yeah. an issue. So therefore the kind of extent of the witch hunt is really quite alarming. And obviously on the one hand, it's a great victory for free speech because if that standard 
had held, like in the original employment mm-hmm. tribunal saying that her views should not be respected in a democratic society. Yeah. It's terrifying. But um, Joe Williams made this point on Spike this week. In a way, the process is the punishment. Yeah. Like the, having to go through court battles, smeared in the press, smeared on social media, made out to be this hate figure. Over two years. Over two years. Yeah, your reputation kind of damaged. Completely. Yeah, and not everyone is up for that fight either. So yeah. the signal that it sends is still, if you want a quiet life, shut up. Mm. So there's a lot more that we have to do, really, because this is a very important victory for free speech, but it is only really the beginning, surely. There have been, I mean, there have been a few other cracks in this mm. um, recently. I mean, it, actually this week, uh, Lisa mm. Keogh, student from Abertay University, cleared. Um, she was investigated again for saying that she believes there's a difference between men and women. So, I mean, are there small glimmers of free speech coming through the... <laughs> Otherwise, you know, yeah, I'm not going to. I'm not going to push that metaphor too far. <laughs> Where was that? I'm, that going, I'm going, down, going down a weird hole. <laughs> that and the and you know and the kind of growing criticism of Stonewall and mm. the and you know we've written about this on Spike before the you know investigations into what's going on at the Tavistock Clinic and there's there's a bit more attention now being paid by sort of general members of the public who aren't just obsessed with this on social media or obsessed with this politically like um, many commentators are to say, hang on a minute, as Tom says, most of us think this thing that's pretty normal, that there are, you know, men and women and we we understand that there are people who want to subvert that and we're okay with that. But does that mean you have to force me to say that the thing I believe to be true isn't true? I mean, the, this is terrible for uh, I always think this is terrible for um, trans people mm. and uh, you know anyone who wants to be a bit kind of gender subvertive. Kathleen Stock in her book, um, mater- new book, Material Girls, makes this really great point, and Brendan interviewed her on his podcast where she says, you know, it's a it's a fallacy that you have to have competing this idea that um, you're not allowed to say that sex matters and you're not allowed to say that sex exists in order to be inclusive of trans. Uh, that you know, if you don't say that, then you are a bigot. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Because because you can have the whole point is you can have rules and beliefs or you know facts yeah. facts about biology that are that are essential to our understanding of ourselves as human beings but the whole power of whether it be gender or identity or the complex nature of us as as human beings is that through the way we interact with each other we can throw all those rules out of the window so you know it i can say yes you are a man biologically but i'll call you shirley if you like and that's you know r- denying that complexity and that informality between our, the way mm. in which we interact is really dystopian because uh, you know uh, whether it's be in relation to lgbtq flags and inclusivity and representation there's this real desire to clamp down on the way in yeah. which we interact and, yeah. and put things in boxes that's actually antithetical to what any kind of queer it politics makes, yeah. was originally about it makes things more awkward it makes things much more fractious. people much more nervous around each other mm. when people could just be kind of figuring mm. things out for themselves and even on the political level like as we've seen th- this isn't a representative position but the way in which the kind of trans ideology has kind of asserted itself in various contexts it has created some genuine frictions and yeah problems in relation to sex-based rights versus transgender rights whatever all kinds of issues that we have to have to hammer out really as a as a society that wants to be harmonious and open and all the rest of it and you cannot do that under conditions of extreme censure denunciation Mm. and criminalization or quasi-criminalization almost of people who take the other view and this is going to inflame these problems it's not going to get to the bottom of it and as ella's saying it's just going to actually put the cause of trans rights back, surely, because it's becoming associated with not only an extreme position, but a very authoritarian position as and, well. And, and people who are 
progressively minded have been turned against this. Yeah. People who the natural audience for this view who would have been open to persuasion have suddenly been put off and now think that, as you say, represents authoritarianism and, you know, a clamp down on their own rights, essentially. Mm. So finally, um, as has been the case pretty much every week, the 21st of June, Freedom Day is in doubt. <laughs> I don't think it's ever been certain since it was announced, I was to be kind honest. of convinced that it was going to happen <laughs> only because still, you never the know, streets you know. released that song 21st oh, of yeah, June of and I thought they can't. That, yeah, they couldn't. Yeah, it'd be wrong to, wrong was, to go that, against the streets. That was the moment I knew that data not dates hadn't sunk in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that song came out anyway. But there's a, I mean, you know, hopefully the streets will come out against it, but there's been a more <laughs> unlikely hero in the form of Andrew Lloyd Webber, mm. who has said he's going to open his theatres come what may, and he's willing to face arrest, yeah. even if it goes against the law. Come with the hour. Come with the <laughs> <laughs> I not think it would come from him. But. He's had some, he's actually been quite interesting throughout lockdown. He was, at one point he kind of got on, so desperate was he in a very good way to reopen theatres and get people back into uh, entertainment and support the industry that he had. The I remember reading about him having this idea of spraying people down with that slightly dodgy <laughs> chemical that they might, and but anyway you have you've to, got to be creative yeah. in this situation you've got to, he you know. was open to options as a thing uh, my my wonder is whether he'll be treated in the same way as van morrison because van morrison oh, yeah. um held concerts that were brilliant concerts i think it was in november last year and he was you know wrote a few songs that were anti-lockdown he said some relatively crazy things about vaccines but that aside <laughs> uh, his, his his yeah. desire his front and center argument was the music industry is suffering if you mm. really actually believe in the arts get behind it and come out and come to the shows and Andrew Lloyd Webber is a slightly different audience to Van Morrison yeah. and a but it will be interesting to see how people react to it because you know there's lots of discussion about pubs there's lots of discussions about um you know live venues but theatres in particular with the whole background of what it takes to put on a show is just vast number of people who are employed in that yeah so really what he's what he's saying is come out and support people who work in these industries and mm. that surely should be need supporting mm. and, and kind of economics aside i guess do, i mean doesn't culture and arts and i guess nightlife and all those things you can't have those in social distancing conditions mm. just it just wouldn't work no exactly so also it's worth remembering that some of these businesses have not been able to open at all mm. during this entire time like mm. uh, a lot of the uh, nightclubs obviously the, well, all nightclubs but the nighttime industries in general yeah um most of them have just had their doors shut the entire time and so this is something that's worth bearing in mind when people say oh what's wrong with you you only care about you know your own profits and what whatnot they haven't had any profits for a very yeah. long time yeah, or so, it's just two weeks what's the biggest it's only two more yeah. weeks two all more that weeks. stuff and then is, four weeks and then six weeks exactly so the uh, goalposts keep getting moved but as you say that's one thing which i think in this sort of discussion we have we're just like things are basically open aren't they you can basically do whatever you want it's mm. just that when you still have that level of restrictions not only are certain businesses not able to operate and that's bad for them but also just the spontaneity yeah the kind of uh, just being able to freely kind of move through society, the kind of creativity that that of that, and also certain settings like you can't have a comedy club where people are spread out so much. Yeah, you have to be work. kind of packed in together, and it just amazes me that people don't get that. At least in the commentary or whatever, they don't understand that all of those things are actually quite important and they can't exist under kind of COVID secure measures. Mm. But this is the thing we've just been asked to sacrifice everything else that is important in life for the sake of tackling this one particular very important public health problem but there's just no appreciation therefore for why those things are so important at this and, point. and and we sort of exist at the license of the state yeah. i mean so you know boris has come out this week and said or well, maybe we'll allow weddings to go ahead now obviously i want weddings to go ahead that's a good thing but mm. it, it just again just entrenches this idea 
that the state has to approve of X activity for you to be able yeah. to do it. Everything is illegal unless Boris says you can do it. Yeah. And that's such a dangerous way of, you know, organising society. Well, I think also it just changes the way in which people look at their own lives and, and value their own freedoms because I've, all, throughout this lockdown, kind of had this mentality of people will push back, you know, people will mm. come back, people will race back. And actually you walk around London now, mm. even when things are relatively somewhat open, it's not, what you might expect it to be. And the whole kind of importance of that 21st of June Freedom Day was it was you would have that marker to say, right, the shackles are off, it's over. And everyone would come together and, and realise, oh, kind of the fear is gone. Mm. I can I can be inspired by other people to come out. And if you, if you drag it out in the way that they're suggesting that they might, in dribs and drabs, yeah. that energy gets lost. And we actually, people need to kick up the arse to, to, in, a, in a nice way. I'm not sort of trying to denigrate people's fears, yeah. but it's been a really weird 15 months and lots of people have gone into their shell. And if you want people to actually get back out and start enjoying social life and, and the public square, some of us might need a push. And if we don't have that push on the 21st of June, then it might not come back. That's my fear. We've just got to keep reminding ourselves that there is just no case for delay. And people are very f- afraid of the Indian variant, the Delta variant, as we, as we now call mm. it. But, you know, cases are rising, yes, infections are rising, but that's not the key metric anymore. You know, hospitalizations are pretty stable. Mm. I mean, there is evidence that some more people are going to hospital, but they're coming out pretty quickly. It's younger and younger people who are getting infected. We know that doesn't cause the same problems as it does in the elderly. We know that the vaccines work. We know that, you know, 50% of all adults, at least by this stage, have had their double dose. Um, everyone vulnerable has at least been offered their double mm. dose. You know, we're in, if, if, if not now, then when? Yeah. That's the question that's got to be asked. I mean, we're in a better position than Sage's best case scenario yeah. exactly. that they modelled when they brought out the roadmap. I mean, mm. we just have to, you find yourself just like screaming into the abyss about all of this stuff. But I think Ella's completely right, which is the problem is, is that because so much fear has been engendered in the population, mm. uh, without that kind of clean break of saying it's over, people aren't going to feel comfortable to come back out again. But I think what's become clear is that even though you would hope that someone in government would realise that they had to take the responsibility to say that it's over, that we've got yeah. to start getting back to normal. They're not going to do it. And mm. whether it's Andrew Lloyd Webber or the night or the people who own nightclubs or just everyone in society, we're going to have to do that for ourselves. Yeah. I think we just, just to show that it's it's safe to come out and that it's important that we come out again. And not to kind of fetishise, uh, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> <laughs> that's, like, that's a bad idea. <laughs> not to fetishise communications or say that there's, you know, it sounds semi-conspiratorial, but I really think the use of the word strain has mm. been important because anytime I hear strain. And I think mutant strain and I think terror, this is awful. And the way in which, you know, the Indian variant or uh, has been in particular has been talked about has been, as Tom says, distinct from the reality of it, because I think we talked about this on the podcast last week. We're now vaccinating the under 25s. I've got mine booked for Wednesday. Yeah, it's yeah. like, you know, if you, as you said, that this was our way out of it. And as you keep saying that actually the vaccines stand up against these new strains or variants, whatever they're called, that, you know, the hospitalizations are, are still relatively low and that it's mainly young people. You know, no one has said the word herd immunity, talk about yeah. controversial words in a very long time, but that's kind of where we're getting to yeah, now. 80% supposedly. of adults have yeah. antibodies yeah. according to the ONS. And you're yeah, not we're allowed, really getting there. You're not allowed to call it herd immunity, but that's what it is. And so then you have to ask why are they wanting us to still be afraid mm. and it, to not be cynical about it but you do think 
the idea that they'd have another lockdown or the idea that they'd have another breakout is, I think, an optics-wise, just such a fear in the government. Yeah. That they can't handle the reputational damage that that would take that they're willing to sacrifice what could be a really successful day. Not you know, Again, the 21st of June is just one day, but it's a day that everybody's been talking about for the last it's, year. It's etched into everyone's brain. It's and, a real historical marker. And, and in terms of the, the vaccine, you're right, you know, the over 25s, it's worth thinking about the fact that only a few weeks ago, the government mm. was talking about vaccine hesitancy. Mm. Yeah. And now, as soon as the... Queuing around the block. Exactly. <laughs> people queuing around the block to Twickenham Stadium, mm. the you know NHS website suffering a kind of Glastonbury-style mm. crash, yeah. because, you know, <laughs> filled with demand for people to get yeah. the vaccine. Mm. That excuse has, has gone away. Yeah. Mm. Variants as well. I mean, thinking about... I mean, the Delta variant has proved, um, you know, more challenging. But think of some of the other ones that have come up. There's been the Thai variant that's gone nowhere, the Yorkshire variant various double mutation variants that they've come out with. None of them have had the catastrophic effect that has been mm. warned. I don't think that the Indian variant is going to cause a catastrophe across, mm. you know, mm-hmm. across mm. my fingers. Um, well, but, thing, you know, we, that's the problem is that we don't know what's yeah. going to happen next. Now, all the indicators are very good. This roadmap has been very cautious. The mm. numbers at the moment are very encouraging. But the problem is, is that because this kind of precautionary approach to these things yeah. has so cemented itself, you really don't know what's going to happen. But the thing is, this far into it, especially with people having done what they were told, so many people haven't gone out and got their vaccines now, even the young people, like you say, we do just have to draw a line under this, yeah. you know, put everything in place to make sure this sort of thing never has to happen again. But it's that problem is that they've become so unable and society will probably so unable to live with that level of uncertainty that there's just this tentativeness despite everything looking so good. Thank you for listening to the Spiked Podcast. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, make sure you keep up with all the latest from Spiked by signing up to our daily newsletter today on Spiked. Just go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters to sign up now.